This is Wesley's, Wesley's fourth week uh, leading our worship. And uh, if you have appreciated his work thus far, would you just wave like that for a minute? We don't need to clap. How about that? Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord one more time before we open the word. Our Father, would you make tonight our first step a step of faith, a rapid step to run to Christ in our thoughts, in our affections, in our thinking, in our trust as the one who has rescued us from the slavery of our sin. We ask this in his name, amen. Well, before we come to the text tonight, I want to spend a few minutes on redressing my message from last Sunday morning. Uh, If you were not here, um, I think perhaps it will be sufficient if you'll hear. I'm going to bring about five points um, in redressing my message. In in effect, uh, what I'd like to do is provide clarity for a few things that may have been unclear. I also want to make some positive statements where my silence was patently not helpful. And a couple of you came to me, and I'm grateful for that uh, with your concerns. I brought that to our elders and spoke with them, and I'm appreciative of that. It's a bit painful, but I think it's important in in the name of uh, transparency and faithfulness to the word. Uh, probably in retrospect, too, originally I was going to arrive around noon in Charlotte a week ago on Wednesday, whenever that was, the week of the 23rd. Long delays. I didn't arrive here till 5.40 in the morning on Thursday, and I think that may have been an error in judgment to tackle 37 verses of case law and part of that, this, this book. Uh, that's not an excuse. I'm simply saying in retrospect, maybe a learning moment for you. But for that, I ask for, for your forgiveness where I was muddy and not clear or silent when, when I should have spoken. So quickly, five points. Number one, I want to provide a point of clarification about law. We, you know that we find in the Old Testament three types of law, what we call Uh, the threefold division of the law. First, there is moral law, then civil or judicial, and then ceremonial. We may say of the moral law that it is primary, it is permanent and abiding. We may say of the civil law that it is temporary, intended for Israel as a theocracy. And then of the ceremonial law, we may say, It is anticipatory of the moral law, primary of the judicial or civil law. It is temporary in the ceremonial law. It is anticipatory. And it's not to say that each of these are in neat little categories. As you work your way through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and then particularly even Deuteronomy, you'll find at times you might be asking, what is each? But first of all, as we are in this section of Exodus after the moral law is given in chapter 20 and then in 21, 22, 23, particularly uh, judicial or civil law, we'll be transitioning in a number of weeks to the ceremonial law beginning there in verse 25. It's, it would have been helpful to make that distinction. Secondly, I'd like to talk about the idea of principle versus practice. We must distinguish between this enduring principle, between an enduring principle of law versus the practice prescribed by it. I'll provide but one example. The fifth commandment, you know, Exodus 20, verse 12, you shall honor your father and your mother. It provides an enduring principle of honoring both our parents and all those in authority. But it was the civil law in Exodus 21, verses 15 and 17, 
that we looked at last Lord's Day morning that also called for the death penalty for those who struck or cursed their parents, a provision that is no longer in practice. And I wish, kids, let me just say for you, I wish I would have made that clear for you so that you're not sitting there thinking, if I hit mom, if I curse dad, that I could, that you could expect to lose your life. And I should have made that clear, and for that, please forgive me. That provision, that is the death penalty for what was in view, adult children cursing or striking their parents, uh, that provision is no longer uh, in practice. It's been both abrogated, we say, and fulfilled in Christ. By abrogated, we mean it's repealed, it's taken away, it's no longer with us. You might know that in our confession in the modern version, in chapter 19, verse 4, we read this, to Israel, he also gave various judicial laws which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. There's a third point I'd like to address, and that is the superiority of the moral law. And I want to quote here a guy that wrote uh, an exposition on the 1689, Simon Wirtanian. He says, basically, the threefold division of the law stresses the superiority of the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments above the ceremonial and judicial slash civil law, which were abrogated and fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord of glory. And so the perpetuity even of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is seen in the fact that these ten words were inscribed by God's finger on the tablets. Here again the confession in 19.5. The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way, in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he strengthens it. That's why we read the formula, or we hear the formula in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's not abolishing the law, but that is in fact strengthening its obligation in the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There's another clarification, and it's quite critical, and that has to deal with the word translated slave in Exodus 21. It's there in about eight verses, nine verses in Exodus 21. It's the word eved or ebed, depending if you make that be hard or soft. It has this wide range of meaning in the Old Testament. I was not clear about that, and I wish I had. You'll understand this when you think about that the nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt. We read in Exodus 1, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. There's our word, ebed. In 1 Kings 3, 8, Solomon's prayer included these words, and your servant, that is eved, translated slave or servant, but servant in this case, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. Repeatedly in the book of Joshua, Moses is called the servant of the Lord, Eved Adonai. And this word finds a parallel in the word doulos, which is translated servant or bondservant in the New Testament. Paul, without apology, claims in Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And there's every reason to believe that slaves, as addressed in Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11, were in fact servants, those who had given themselves voluntarily as indentured servants, perhaps more here not of slavery, but servitude. And a purpose of the civil laws for Israel was to formalize the practices likely already underway 
that would protect the rights and lives of those servants in keeping with the very gracious heart of God. And you ask, what is God's gracious heart looks like? It's revealed as the one who creates life, as the one who protects life, as the one who sustains life, and whose law is designed to create the flourishing of life of which he is the sole author. There's a final point that I'd like to address now before we come to our text for the night, and that is this. Neither God nor the scriptures condone the slavery that marked the Egyptians' forced slavery of the Israelites or the capture, the sale, and forced slavery of Africans that is part of our own country's history. And I want to share this just for a moment. Cheryl reminded me that our own dad, Lee Pittman Hatfield, when we did the history of the Pittman family, that in the 1850s and the 1860s, there was a father and son whose surname was Pittman, my father's ancestors who owned about 30 slaves from the age from ages 2 to 30 it's in our own family ancestry but the bible does not condone or promote such a practice in no way can the scriptures be employed to defend such horrific abuse and an effort to do that is an abuse and a tw- and a twisting of the scriptures in fact In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, Paul writes this, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then when you come to verse 10, it says, For enslavers. Men, women, and children should not have been regarded or treated as mere chattel then, nor today, as objects. And I hope that's clear enough. But still, to be fair... Israel's slavery in Egypt is paradigmatic. It is symbolic of our bondage to sin and the power of the devil. And so as Moses led Israel out of Egypt, so Jesus, our brother, brings us out of our own slavery to sin to the freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so in Romans 6, Paul picks up this theme and he says in Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him so that we should, would no longer be enslaved to sin. But thanks be to God, this is verses 17, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, the true freedom which is only found in Jesus Christ. So with that, if you'll allow me, I'd like to come to our text for tonight. I'd like to give a caution here. As as you know, as we preach any particular portion of Scripture, it's the larger context as well as the immediate and more narrow that are necessary for our right understanding of any particular portion. The truth is that even with the book of Hebrews, which is like a, in effect, a, it's, a, it's a, an epistle in sermonic form, it would be better appreciated if we could hear it all at once. But we take these books and we preach them in chunks. But so I think a bit of caution, and it's the challenge of taking 37 verses last, like last week or 20 tonight and preaching it without an understanding of the broader context. But tonight, the subject of our text is restitution. If you'll turn with me then to Exodus chapter 21, the subject is restoration. And simply put, it's right to make things right. That's the big idea. It's right to make things right. And so follow me as I read our text out loud beginning with Exodus 21 in chapter, in verse 33, we'll read all the way through verse 15 of the following chapter. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. 
He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt on for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or, or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. And then finally, in verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is the word of the Lord. I want to consider just a five or six, actually five um, simple observations before we look at these in order. We consider these 20 verses. Number one is that every sphere of property, as that's really the, the subject here, every sphere of property in the Israelites' historical or cultural context is addressed generally, if not specifically, here in these verses. For example, in our own context, we could add the lending or the use of all types of things, the use of a car, a cell phone, uh, letting someone use one of your accounts, lending them your credit card. Maybe someone comes to your property and you know you have a dog that likes to bite, that's not very friendly. Uh, there's all types of ways you could apply that to our context. Maybe you've borrowed a book or you've lent someone a book. And uh, you know what that's like. Uh, I always tell Cheryl, whenever I lend a book, it's a gift into eternity because I say, if I never get it back, it's okay. 
That's all right. If I don't get it back, I knew the Lord knows that that person needed it more than I do. And if it comes back with a coffee stain and that smells like French roast by Starbucks, it's okay. I just have a coffee stained, you know, systematic theology. And you have to contextualize this. And we have to pay this forward to our own day. And so you have broad general principles that we need to apply specifically um, to our own day. Secondly, this portion of law, of Scripture here is law, and specifically what we call casuistic law or case law. It's the idea of if this happens, then take this step. Or if this contingency occurs, then make restitution by this action. And so part of our goal here is to take the general principles of what we're reading applied to these specific, in tonight, in this case, eight different situations, and seek to draw out, uh, to, to really boil it down and understand what's the principle behind uh, the specific uh, statute or law, right? And it's different. We talked about this last week. Two types of law, if you weren't here, apodictic law that says you shall or you shall not versus casuistic, which is if then conditional uh, in nature. Thirdly, I want us to see that motive and foreknowledge are a basis for how restitution is made. Motive and foreknowledge are a basis for how restitution is made. Intent is important. And then fourthly, that principal responsibility for a loss is given to those principally responsible for that loss. Principal responsibility for a loss is given to those principally responsible for that loss. And then finally, a fifth observation here is that much of this section, these 20 verses, is really drawing out the implications of the Eighth Commandment. Kids, what is the Eighth Commandment? Four words. Who knows? It's before lying and it's before adultery. You shall not, that's right, you shall not steal. You shall not wrongfully take, misuse what is another's. All right. Well, let's just jump in. We'll look at each of these briefly. I want to show you from the outline of kind of first, uh, you might look at these 20 verses this way, animals, the focus is on animals in verse 33 through verse 4 of chapter 22. And then secondly, you will see um, there, after animals, you'll see fields. It's the idea of uh, agriculture there in verses 5 and 6, and then property in verses 7 through 15. So keep this simple, animals, fields or agriculture, and then personal property or goods. This is the world that they live in. So first I want us to see, uh, as we think of animals here, uh, particularly three cases. First, in verses 33 through 34, this section, these verses form a transition to the laws of chapter 22. You might regard, we might speak of them, uh, this as dangerous property. In the dry and hot season, they would have these cisterns whose purpose was to collect water, all right? Uh, But those cisterns, if they were left unprotected, created a huge hazard for man and for beasts. And so the issue here was the misuse of property that would cause harm to persons or animals. Maybe sometimes you've heard about in the upstate about a baby or a toddler or a little child that falls into a a well that's not capped, that's not protected. That's happened. Children have been rescued, but they've also died. And so here, full compensation was owed here by the negligent party, but not the double restitution that was due in the case of theft. 
all right, not do in the case of theft. Notice simply in verse uh, 4 of chapter 22, it speaks of, if speaking of a stolen beast is found alive in the possession, right, of a thief, no, no matter what type of an animal, the person would pay double. In this case, that's not the case when a person opens a pit. But see God's mercy here to the offender as he would receive the animal carcass for the benefit of the skin, even if not the meat, all right? So notice in verse 34 where it says, the owner of the pit, which this animal falls into, has to make restoration to the person who suffered loss, right? Because he doesn't cover it. It says, she shall give money to its owner in the fair market value at least of that animal, and the dead beast shall be his. Most commentators believe when it says the dead beast shall be his, that that animal, even if the the flesh is not good, belongs to the person who left the pit uncovered. It's a bit of the mercy of God because that person is making right that animal that was lost, whether it's an ox or a donkey. Well, let's look secondly at dangerous animals in verses 35 and 36. You'd have to assume that no foreknowledge of such an action was anticipated. It would be like if your dog in your house has no history of aggression or biting someone, and I come over, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, your dog bites me. It wasn't anticipated, and I need to go to MD360 and get stitches or whatever type of shot. The principle here is that it's your dog, and though there's no foreknowledge or you couldn't have anticipated this, nonetheless, you're responsible, all right? But in this case, as you look at verses 35 and 36, you have this animal, right? One ox butts another so that the ox that's butted or gored It dies. And in this case, the provision is that both the sale price of the live animal and the meat of the dead animal are to be treated equally. That's in the case that this could not have been anticipated. But if there was knowledge, you might say foreknowledge, of a tendency on the part of ox A, the goring ox, if you knew that, by an owner... And he didn't protect his neighbor's ox from his own by reasonable caution. That the animal's owner of ox A would owe compensation to the owner of the dead animal, right? It says, verse 36, if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beasts shall be his. So that's different in the case where it's not anticipated, where they, the, the cost, right? They share the price. They sell this one ox. They split the proceeds. They split the dead animal. But in the case where it's known, in that case, the owner of the goring ox has to completely repay the full value of that ox. And then the dead beast still in this case belongs to the man um, uh, to, to the man who's taking care of that. In that case, the owner of the goring ox. Let's move on to verses one through four and we think of the theft of animals. Of course, this makes sense right there in with the eighth commandment, you shall not seal. So what do we have here? From verse one of chapter 22 through verse 15, we have the beginning of a 15 verse section on laws about the protection of property. And we find the implications of that eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And if you didn't know that, you could look in the Trinity hymnal uh, under the chair in front of you and in either the shorter or longer catechism, at the back of that, it will give all that's required by the Eighth Commandment and all that's forbidden. I think 
however you thought you've done with the Eighth Commandment, you might be convicted in reading uh, the way uh, th that was thought about in, in uh, as the, the Westminster Divines put that together. But all these verses then apply to theft, to damage, and even the treatment of borrowed goods. Let me just ask a quick question. Has anyone ever lent something to someone and it either didn't come back or it came back damaged or it came back many, many years later? Has anyone had that experience? Do you understand what I'm saying? All right. So you understand this is not an uncommon experience. There's no death penalty here. Something quite different to the law codes of the surrounding nations or even places, Sharia law, that say you steal what happens to your hand. Okay. You see the, God's grace is all over the pages of this here. Okay. He's far more gracious. No death penalty. Very different to the law codes of the surrounding nations. And we're not talking about taking something here by force, armed robbery, but rather the secret misappropriation of the goods of another. Maybe some of you have even had this experience. You take care of lunch, so it's all on your credit card, and everybody, it's three people eating, and everyone's around $10, or it's $12, and your friend wants you to accept $10 for his $12 lunch so you don't have to break the next five. Has anyone ever had that experience? You understand that, okay? That's sneaky. That's sneaky. That's a sense of misappropriation there. And John McKay, he explains the penalties for thieves. And I love this. Here it is. He says the thief here, because this is not armed robbery, he's deliberately set out to benefit himself at the expense of another. And therefore, when he is caught, much more has to be done than to compensate the owner for its loss. And I want you to notice here, as you look at verses 1 through 4, notice here, the difference between biblical restitution, where it's right to make things right, than our modern practice. Watch this. In the Mosaic law, the victim of the fence is compensated. The penalty does not accrue to the authorities. You see that distinction? There are no fines. All right? In the case sometimes now, right, you've, you've You've hurt someone, and you have both a penalty to the state and then compensation to the victim. But in, in the model here of biblical restitution, in the judicial law, all the compensation was directed to the victim. Now, I'd like to look briefly at two cases of property damage. You'll see these simply, verse 5, verse 6. The case number 1, we say verse 5, is damaged by a straying animal. Damaged by a straying animal. John McKay, he says this, to prevent disputes over the quality of what was lost or damaged. He says, it is stipulated that the assessment has always to be in favor of the individual who has suffered the loss. And restitution is made from the highest grade of produce available to the other party. So let me, let's, let's make it look like this. If I'm at your house and all of a sudden I realize I need a white dress shirt for an occasion and I don't have one and I borrow it from you and then it's six months later and you ask me about it and I realize that I did borrow it and I have no idea where it is. It's lost. I maybe don't go to Walmart and get it for $11 even if I could, but maybe I look for something with Egyptian cotton at Joseph Banks and I am willing to drop 40 bucks. I don't go at the cheapest to make it right, but maybe generously, right? Okay, that's the principle here. Restitution is made from the highest grade of produce available to the other party. So instead of getting away with as little, we really come towards the other party. That's the idea there with the straying animal, verse 5. Then damage by unintended 
by untended fire. I think we could say this, we could call this unintended damage by untended fire. I think it's helpful to know that in Palestine, there were about 70 varieties of these spiny plants, and they, they used these plants like a hedgerow. Maybe some of you have seen that in England, where fields are bordered by hedgerows. Has anyone seen that in pictures? Something like that. But there were these spiny plants, and they used this to divide fields and keep animals that wanted to eat crops out. It was their effect. No chain link fences, but... Fences made with spiny plants. And the problem was is that in the dry season, they were easily ignited by fire. And so anything leaning against that, like sheaves of whatever, wheat, corn, against that was at risk in the case of a fire. And so here's the principle that this verse communicates. And kids, this is for you. Do any of you kids ever say, I didn't mean it? Has anyone used that expression, I didn't mean that. And that's right. Sometimes, sometimes you knock over a domino and you collapse a whole row of dominoes. You didn't mean it, but nonetheless, it was your finger that knocked it over. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the principle that this verse communicates in chapter 22 and verse 6. Every individual is responsible for the indirect consequences of his actions on the properties of others. Maybe a few. Are there any men here who as boys broke windows with baseballs or golf balls? I did. Did anyone else or am I the only one? Okay, I see. Great. All right. It was never intentional, but the damage was there nonetheless, and we were responsible for it. So even if you did not mean it, children of Grace Baptist Church, even if you were not trying to be mean, what we say, you had no malicious intent, you were responsible for both the direct and indirect consequences of your actions. If I'm a plumber and I'm supposed to put pipe insulation on that cold water from this point to this up in the attic and I don't do it and then it freezes on Christmas Eve and those pipes burst and all that water that I never intended now is coming down through a house, I have a responsibility there. Does that make sense? I didn't intend it, intended it, but it happened. Lack of intent is no excuse from the responsibility to make things right. This is love for our neighbor. So kids, if you lose your neighbor's ball, if you lose their sidewalk chalk, if you run over their frisbee and it cracks, make that right. Ask mom and dad to help you make that right. Make your neighbor, we say, whole. This is obedience. This is obedience to, this is fulfillment of the eighth commandment. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Moreover, love does everything right for a neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And then finally, in verses 7 through 15, I want us to see the idea of Three cases is custody of property. Some of you might know I have an app on my phone. I lend out a lot of books, and I keep up with that all the time. I probably have 30 books out to different people, all right? Some of them aren't even in this state, okay? And I just keep up. And it's really, I'm really good with the sense of just accepting that about 5% of all books I lend out, I never get them back. Some of them come back with torn pages and coffee stands. It's all good, all right? Um. But it makes us think of the idea of the custody of property. I want us to see three cases here. And I know for some of you, this may be, you may be like, I hate it when things don't come back to me. And so I I don't lend anything out. I don't ask anyone to take care or custody of anything I have because I don't want to have that. And this, you know, the, the, 
the ethic with the gospel is that we're generous because we can't outgive God. We're not, when we die, we don't take it with us anyways. We send it on ahead by virtue of all that we have is the Lord's. Everything we had, we may, we have received from his hands. And so we have freely received Jesus as we may freely give. And so knowing that yet, there is this address in Israel's civil laws about the custody of property. So look with me here in verses seven through nine. And you'll notice what I want us to see here is to think of a family on leave. Like maybe you would go away on vacation for two weeks and pay a teenager to house sit for you. Has anyone ever had someone sit for your house? Okay. Has anyone had someone care for your dog, take care of your, right? Or you've done that for another person, okay. Or you've gone a long time and you said, cut my yard. Has anyone had that? You arranged for someone to cut your yard. There's all types of things like this that we do, okay. As we think of the custody of property here. So the principle is within, and the idea here was within the covenant community, things were to be taken care of when left um, in the care of another, entrusted to another. But if in fact, while left with another, a, those items, those goods are stolen, what's the penalty? Not simply par, but consistent with 22.4, in the case that something, where some, something is stolen, the price the payment is double, all right? And you'll notice the acknowledgement that sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes it's stolen and the thief is found and he pays double. But in verse 8, sometimes there's the, there is the claim that what was entrusted to another was in fact stolen. It wasn't malfeasance by the person who it was left with. And The owner returns, and there's there's no way to corroborate that this thing that's missing was, in fact, stolen. And then there's this language here about the owner shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. I think it makes sense, some of the commentators address this as the idea of involving judges and not taking, not being presumptive here and not taking personal um, vengeance um, or um, taking the law in effect into one's own hands. So when the language there for every breach of trust, verse 9, that implies that it's not a matter at this point simply left to two individuals, but that it's come to the courts, to the judges. It's a breach of trust. Whether it's something as simple as a cloak that is missing or an ox at great value, okay? And so both cases, right? Both cases, I mean, both parties come and they say, this is what happened, all right? So maybe the one who was holding the stuff says, honestly, it was stolen while you were gone. The other person says, I don't believe that. I left it with you. Now what's happened? And so when it uses this language, shall come before God, that's the idea of coming and being subject to Israel's courts and jurisprudence. And it says this concluding sentence, the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. In that case, as it goes through the courts. What about livestock? You see this in verses 10 through 13. All right? And this is similar. So first is the care of goods, verses 7 to 9. And then livestock in verses 10 through 13. And I want you to notice here that the matter extends to whether an animal is any one of three things just driven away can't be found is injured or is patently sitting there dead it's the same and there's that language and oath right you see and oath by the lord shall be between them both 
to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. All right? And the, it says, the owner shall accept the oath, and, she ha- and he shall not make restitution. All right? He shall not make restitution. And, and then if it says, if it is stolen, he shall make restitution to its owner. So in both cases, verse 11 and 12, speaking of the one either not making restitution or making restitution, we're speaking of the one that was in possession of what was left entrusted to him when the person left. And I think it's just for us. Let me, I want to speak to the children just for a moment. As a practical thing, when you think of these little, these four words, do not steal. That when something is entrusted to you, if you borrow a friend's bike, or you borrow a, a video game, anything, it doesn't matter. Understand the responsibility of taking care of what's been entrusted to you. Even when you think you're doing the other person a favor, you understand. You can't, you can't claim in that case uh, there's a responsibility that comes even with taking care of something for someone, even when you're doing it as a favor. Now, let's move on finally to verses 14 and 15. It deals with borrowing property, which is really where I was just a moment ago. What's assumed here is carelessness or neglect. We're responsible to return whatever is borrowed in good condition, as near as possible to how you receive it. And so, uh, just, just a principle here. Let me ask you, um, when you look at these 20 verses of civil law for Israel that we've already established early was temporary. The moral law as primary, the, the civil law is temporary, and then the ceremonial law as anticipatory. These two, the civil and ceremonial law, pointing to finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ, being abrogated, being repealed when Israel ceased to exist there as a theocracy. Do you see some type of disconnect with all of this in the gospel? Let me ask you this. If you borrow a car, will you return it washed inside and out with a full tank of gas? Or you return it where it's worse, it's trashed, and you either return it with the same amount of gas. Like, this is not, you're not renting this here from, you know, from a, a car rental place. This is from your neighbor. What would you do? Do you return it better? Moms and dads, let me ask you a question. When you go out to eat with your four or five children, do you try before someone needs to clean up your table and bust your table? Do you try to make some degree of order out of the chaos that your children have just caused? Yeah. Have you thought about, are you thinking that a $3 tip is sufficient for them to spend 20 minutes to clean that up? Do you think you can return that table to something that kind of makes it look like when you arrived? It's close, all right? And the point here in verses 14 and 15, though, is that this is, there's responsibility both sides. If the owner was present for the purpose of hire, then the loss was assumed by him. I want you to think how this would apply to us. You understand that if a tree cutter gives a lump sum price to cut and trim the trees on your property, and then when they arrive, their bucket truck breaks down, or their saw stops working, or their employees get sick and need to go home and they got to hit the restart button for your job tomorrow. In that case, you have no obligation to cover that loss for them. They were for hire. Now, you could graciously, you could do that just to be kind. But the point is that natural risk and reward is assumed. It's different. There you see in verse 15, it says, if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee, speaking here of an ox. 
But love for our neighbor will compel us to return to our neighbor what we have borrowed in a timely fashion or agreed to in as good a condition as possible. Now, some of you might be rolling your eyes. You might think, well, this is not just as ethereal and heavenly as a discussion about justification and sanctification. Actually, no. Love is the fulfillment of the law. A measure of how we're doing in growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in an imitation of him, in reflection of his image, is that we love in very practical and measurable ways. So I ask in closing, how about you? Do you love your neighbor by living conscientiously to protect their lives and their goods? Do you respect their time by being on time? Or have you somehow thought that to live in line with the gospel does not include such practical concerns? You just really want to have your quiet time in prayer, but you're not conscientious about what belongs to your neighbor. Actually, if we're truly converted, we will care about what belongs to our neighbor. Even the neighbor next door that might not like us, but they're still our neighbor. And we owe love to them. Remember, it's the Lord Jesus who fulfilled the law for us by actively keeping its requirements perfectly. But he also suffered the penalty for us who failed to do so. And that's the, perhaps the most glorious truth available to human ears. Some of you know I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor thieves. Right there in verse 10, the eighth commandment. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is right to make things right. But we may only do so in the power of the gospel which comes from Christ alone. Let's look to him. The king of love our shepherd is to love our neighbor and one another in this body as only he can enable us to do. Amen.